Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have two guests. I have uh, Gwen Jones, co-owner of Ariel Grace Design and Boeing and & Company, and uh, Carla per- uh, Perlstein, uh, also co-owner of um, Ariel Grace Design. Thank you for joining me. It's our pleasure. Yes. So uh, tell me a little bit about your background. I'll let you decide who's going to go first. Um, so um, this is Gwen speaking, and I've been making floor cloths since about 2004. Um, and in 2016, I also got involved in the business of antique wallpaper, joining both Sullivan at Bowling & Co., uh, which has an amazing archive of original wallpapers uh, dating from about 1880 to 1930. And prior to these creative endeavors, I worked in telecommunications, primarily for Sprint, and then at a series of internet startups. I was attracted to floor cloths, which I had never encountered prior to about 2002, as I saw them as this fabulous marriage of beauty, craft, and function. Um, they're a very practical alternative to area rugs and are infinitely, uh, infinitely customizable in terms of style, pattern, and palette. Um, for the uninitiated, floor cloths are canvas-based rugs with painted designs. I was just completely charmed by them. And when I got laid off from my last technology job, I was delighted to focus on creating a tangible product that gives people joy. And I have to say, in my experience, floor cloths really do that. And, um, I, you know, I I was attracted, this is Carla speaking, and I was attracted to floor cloths. Um, I, I first came across the, the concept of floor cloths on the back, in back, the back, back east. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were something that uh, I saw in house museums like right. the historic New England and whatnot. And then I made acquaintance with Gwen and realized that she was making these beautiful floor cloths here. And it wasn't constricted to just kind of the colonial patterns. So a lot of times when people think of floor cloths, they kind of think of those colonial patterns. But the one nice thing about what we're doing in terms of aerial grace is that the canvas is truly um, a, a design option that anybody can come up with a design for. It doesn't have to be boxed in by you know the colonial um, designs. And so we, when we make floor cloths for people, it can be anything from mid-century modern to something they come up with to, to uh, wallpaper design. I mean, it can be anything along the spectrum. And, we, and we're starting to experiment with printing designs mm-hmm. on, on the canvas. Right. So that's another really exciting segue to open up a 
whole new Other arena designs, of designs. Right. Not limited by, or do, you, do you stencil? Is that this, how Most of them are stencil. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, so, so you wouldn't be limited by, by a stencil. Yeah, you right. wouldn't be limited by a stencil, but you can also freehand design mm -hmm. too. I mean, it's right. it's it's a it's a blank canvas. You can do whatever you want. So um, why why preservation? Um, what what drew you into kind of preserving this as a as an an art form, pretty much? Yeah. So what what I would say is that in sort of three ways, floor cloths are about preservation. Um, they predated linoleum as a popular form of floor covering and were produced in the UK and Scotland in the 17 and 1800s in large manufacturing plants. And they were imported to the US, but significant manufacturing was never really established here. Um, and the reason for that was linoleum was patented in 1864, which was roughly the time that manufacturing was being set up here. Um, and linoleum was cheaper to produce and incredibly durable, and it just kind of killed the nascent floor cloth industry here. Um, but artisans have been making floor cloths um, for the past several decades. And then sort of recently, I would say in the past 10 years or so, there are a number of companies both in the US and around the world that are printing um, kind of the traditional floor cloth designs that Carla was referencing um, on vinyl. Okay. And, and in some cases, they're calling those floor cloths. Um, but the, I think they cozy up to the concept of preservation in that they're an old product that is being made again. Right. So that, that's one way. And in another way, um, a, a well-made floor cloth is incredibly durable and will last for many decades. And so they're much more environmentally friendly than a lot of what people might use as an alternative in a kitchen rug right. um, that ends up getting replaced every couple of years. <clears throat> They'll way outlast um, these vinyl alternatives. And so to the extent that preservation is a form of environmentalism, they check that box. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that in my view, um, you know, one of the aspects of preservation is that it's a celebration of old things. And this sort of harkens to what Carl was saying about the, the patterns. A lot of the patterns <clears throat> that are used for floor cloths are these old traditional designs. And there was this, um, this 1739 book, I think, um, from John Carwitham, which is called uh, Various Kinds of Floor Decorations. And that is sort of a Bible of floor cloth designs that a lot of floor cloth makers use. And those designs tend to be very geometric and um, have sort of um, the sort of a look of inlaid marble. Right. Um, and so those patterns are, are very commonly reproduced as floor cloths. And, what we've done are a number of pieces that are based on linoleum patterns where a client finds um, a linoleum pattern, say, under their existing flooring or preserved in the closet or under a piece of furniture or something, and they want to restore that room back to its original furnishings. And so we can take that linoleum pattern, um, create stencils uh, to reproduce it, you know, reproduce the colorway. Um, and end up essentially providing them the linoleum that they're looking for um, in this floor cloth form, which can be wall to wall or it can be as an area rug. Um, and at this point, if you want to find somebody who's going to actually do that with linoleum, there are very few people that are doing it and it's right. incredibly expensive. Um, so floor cloths are a great way to get the look of linoleum at a, at a reasonable price. And so in that sense, it's 
It's preserving the appearance, right? Yeah. I, I, when you were talking about the environmental aspect, I was thinking too. You don't have the issues with the VOCs and off-gassing, right. That you have with some of the other products, right? Yeah. Absolutely yeah. true. Did you have a, a why why preservation? What drew you into preservation? Well, I, I um, this is Carla again, and I have been involved in preservation for a very long time in many different iterations of preservation. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done historic preservation consulting. Um, I've done work for for you know homeowners. I've done work for museums, and so you know I've been involved in lots of different arenas with historic preservation. And um, I, again, really love the, the concept of the floor cloths and I'm bringing those into some of my preservation projects. Right. So I've been, um, I used floor cloths extensively here at the firehouse where I did, you know, a big preservation or restoration project here. Um, and then other, other clients I have recommended uh, floor cloths and they have used them and loved them. Right. So, so tell me about Ariel Grace Designs, um, the history, what what kind of products, I'm assuming it's floor cloths, but yeah. like what, what, what other, I think that there's other things that you do offer besides just the floor cloths, same material and things, but was there like placemats and runners and things like that? Um, actually, we're, we're really not doing that. We are okay. concentrating okay. really on the floor cloths, but in terms of um, the genesis of, of this company, um, I had had a former floor cloth company from 2004 to 2016, and in 2016, I sort of took a break from that and um, started working with Bo Sullivan at, um, at Bowling and Company. Um, and uh, I had known Carla since 2008 or so, and she was the founder of the Preservation Artisan Guild, which my former floor cloth company had been a member of and Bowling and Company was a member of. And in 2018, Carla was working on, she'd been working on this actually for, for years by then, but she was getting to the point of how she wanted to furnish the firehouse and asked me to help her find somebody to make the floor cloths that she was looking for because she felt that floor cloths were the right predominant floor covering for the firehouse. And so we sort of looked around to see if we could find a resource and Given what she was looking to do and the scale she she wanted for the pieces and so forth, we just weren't really finding a resource. And she said to me, well, you know, I have a space. Um, could you make them for me? And I thought, you know, wow, that would be wonderful for me to be able to get back into doing right. some floor cloth making, which um, as much as I love the wallpaper business, and it really is marvelous in terms of kind of surrounding yourself with beauty, it doesn't have the same creative um, opportunities that floor right. cloth making yeah. does. So um, I thought, well, I'll dip back into that for a while and, and work with Carla um, to come up with what we're going to do for the firehouse. And in my former um, life as a floor cloth maker, one of the things that I'd always wanted to do but never actually was able to realize was to take the patterns of Christopher Dresser um, and particularly his book Studies in Design which was um, published in 1875 and this book has just a wealth of fantastic patterns and um, I had always thought some of them would were very adaptable to floor cloths right. and so when I was walking through the firehouse with Carla and we were looking at the spaces that we want to put floor cloths in there was one particular one which is actually this one right here um, and I thought, oh my God, that is 
you know, just a, a perfect place to use this particular design. And I showed Carla the book and we went through it and she was said, oh, I, I love these designs too. And in fact, I think all of the floor cloths for the firehouse should be made using these Christopher Dresser designs as a means of sort of tying together the, the look. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did that. And um, I think ultimately we produced 11 pieces um, for the firehouse, nine of which are based on Christopher Dresser patterns and two of which are based on wallpaper patterns from the same era from Bowling and Company's archives. So um, in the course of this marvelous collaboration, um, we decided why don't we make a, uh, you know, develop a company right. so that we can share these fabulous patterns with the hopefully adoring public. <laughs> um, and so um, we did that and we, um, we formed the company in 2019 and uh, launched our website in late 2020. Okay. Um, and, you know, at this point have a portfolio of, I don't know, maybe 40-ish uh, designs, um, which are fairly heavily Christopher Dresser based. Um, uh, a number of, of, again, reproduced linoleum patterns. Um, some and, marbleized ones. Uh, some, yeah, mm -hmm. some, some marbleized patterns and um, uh, a, a number of patterns that are based on wallpaper. And then we've also, to the extent, you know, if a client comes to us and they have um, an idea about what they want, there is a huge number of uh, stencils dental companies out in the world right. and we will certainly um, go to them and, and if there's something that we think is going to work, um, we'll use a pre-made stencil. The, um, did you have anything to add about the history or, or well, your product? Um, you know, we have done, like Gwen was saying, about kind of the, the reproduction of linoleum, right. historic linoleum. We did a project for a historic house in, in California where they found a, a piece of the, the old linoleum that had the, this little checker pattern. Mm. And we were able to reproduce that and then create it in such a way that it could you know, be wall to wall. Right. And then we shipped that to them. So, you know, again, it's, it's all very custom. Right. We do. I, and I, when you were saying wall to wall, it made me think, do you put something on it so that it stays down or is there like, a... You know, with the, like with the, the, the um, Molding the half round molding. Well, I was just even, I was just even thinking like on the we bottom of the floor line. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you actually you actually keep it down. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There, 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 there are a number. Yeah. Okay. So then it, you don't have to worry. I guess I was imagining like even if, if it's wall to wall, that's a little bit different than like having like an area rug style. Right. Yeah. That maybe the edges would curl or so. Yeah, it makes sense that you could have a way to tack it down. Right. Yeah. Right. And there there's one room that's done that way here at the firehouse. Okay. So. So um, you talked a little bit about it, but uh, tell me a little bit about the history of floor cloths or what floor cloths are, you know, specifically. So basically the concept is that they're a, um, a fabric base uh, with a painted pattern. And that notion of using that style of thing as a floor covering um, came about in the Renaissance period in Europe. So they've been around for about 500 years. Um, and I would say the most common substrates back in the day were probably burlap. Um, and today the most common substrate is canvas or now I think there are a lot of people that are doing again this printed vinyl thing. Um, but, and, and that is sort of 
not really a floor cloth in the right. sense that it isn't the fabric and it's not yeah. the painted design. Yeah, it's not but, a cloth. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the commonality a lot of times is the pattern. But um, it, I think that there are many different ways that people have made floor cloths, particularly since manufacturing never really got set up here. Right. It's how artisans have chosen to make them. Um, and I've been experimenting um, again since 2004 with various different canvas weights. Um, and at this point, I'm exclusively using the canvas that you see up that is used um, for all of these, which is a number four cotton duck, which is a extremely heavyweight um, industrial grade canvas. And we prime the back side of that and then put two coats of gesso on the top side and then four coats of Benjamin Moore paint standing between coats. Um, and then the design is generally stenciled on that, right. although as Carla alluded to, we're also um, printing. But when we do printing, it is again on this exact same method of construction. So it's, it's printed on the, on the painted material. Um, in the case of stencils, a lot of times we are having the stencils made and the most complicated part of the whole process is figuring out the stencil layout, right. figuring out the motif sizes and all of that. But once the design has been applied, um, we uh, apply five coats of sprayed polyurethane on top of the design and then cut it to its hemmed size, flip it over, um, hem it. And we use a, um, uh, do a two inch hem that is glued, um, which I much prefer to a sewn hem okay. because um, as you can see, you, you don't really even notice anything right. there. You, yeah. can't, you can't see a hem, whereas with a sewn hem, you can see stitching. Um, there's a potential for that to at some point unravel, yeah. whereas this is really very secure. Um, and then the thing we do on our um, area style pieces that aren't wall to wall is apply a, um, a layer of carpet padding um, that goes from the hemline to the hemline. And then we cover that with a, um, a vinyl fabric, um, which creates a, a floor covering. It's very easy to keep clean. So, right. it, you know, pet hair and dander yeah. and all of that stuff um, that would get absorbed in in the backside of a regular floor cloth or in a rug doesn't get attracted it actually gets rejected right um and also as you can perhaps feel yourself there's a little bit of cushion uh and so these these are incredibly durable uh floor coverings right. that will last for decades if properly cared for. And one of the things that we do is apply a coat of wax as the final finish coat. On top of the poly. Yeah. And then maintenance is re-waxing in a, in a busy space, maybe every six months and in a less busy space, maybe every two or three years. Uh, but as long as that kind of maintenance is followed, they really will stay looking beautiful for uh, decades. Well, and that makes the wax makes sense to kind of to like knock down any shininess too. So it really gives you a nice. It allows the colors to pop, but not have like a shiny kind of glossy look. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and and then for people that have allergies or or any issues of that type, the floor cloths are so much better than carpets right. because they again don't hold pet hair. They're you know they're easily cleanable. Yeah. Um, if something if water gets spilled on them, it's easily cleaned. So floor cloths are a much more hygienic alternative than carpet. Right. Yeah. And easy, easy cleanups a huge, huge thing with pets. <laughs> oh. Yes. Yes. And with 
Oh, that's true. <laughs> so what is the process to order a floor cloth from them? Um, so we have a, a small inventory on our website. And for those pieces, somebody can just um, you know call us or, or email us um, and uh, pay via check or electronically and we'll, we'll ship out within a day. But most of the work that we do is custom. Okay. Um, and so that typically involves um, a fair amount of back and forth. And I would say most of that is done by email, but it can be phone. It's whatever the, the client prefers. Mm -hmm. And what we're interested in, in understanding are um, what patterns appeal to them. So I, I ask them to look through our website and um, maybe there's a pattern that they really like, but even if there isn't the perfect pattern for them, it's good to understand what does appeal to them right. so that if I'm going to do a wider stencil search, I can have an idea yeah, of what they sort like. Of what right. they like. Right. Um, so th the other thing we need to know is what they have in mind for palette, or they can just, if they don't really have a sense of that, the other thing we need regardless is pictures of the room the piece is going to be in. Um, and then some idea of what they want the size to be. And if they don't really have an idea about that, again, pictures can help us help them determine right. what that should be. Yeah. Um, Often what I will do is create a, um, a graphic image of what the floor cloth might look like in the, in the size that they're looking at. Um, and then the, the thing I strongly encourage people to do is um, have us create a sample. Um, and a sample is produced with the design and the colors we've talked about um, on prepared canvas. Right. And it, Generally, might be 20 inches by 20 inches, but it really depends on what the size of the elements of the pattern are. Um, and then uh, we send that to them, and they can look at that in their in the room it's going to be in, and make sure that yes, yeah. the palette's right, and I, oh yeah, the you know the motif size it seems really yeah. good. Um, and then once they've approved the sample, it takes about four to six weeks for us to produce um, the piece, and we do look for a 50% deposit at the time that they right. have given us approval and 50% um, when we ship. And then do you ship via um, like, uh, a, like UPS or FedEx or something like that? And, yes. And then so you can, you can ship, you're not, you're not geographically limited. You can ship. No, no, we ship actually all over the U S okay. and internationally. And what we, what we use is a um, two concrete forming tubes. So we, wrap the floor cloth around a concrete forming tube and then put it in a larger concrete forming right. tube. So it's an incredibly secure method of shipment. Right. And I think I probably shipped a thousand of these and I've had one damage claim. Um, I'll never use that carrier again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think having creating samples is so important because especially if you're doing something where you're not seeing the person and you know that really helps to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So then I know that uh, Gwen had mentioned earlier that uh, she had met Carla through the Preservation Artisan Guild. So can you tell me a little bit about about your that organization? So the, the Preservation Artisans Guild is a community of craftspeople and artisans, and we, you know, we we comprise basically building arts, but also you know um, different kinds of crafts. We yeah. have people who restore paintings. We have people that restore light fixtures. We have contractors. We have you know um, 
building designers. And so it, it covers a wide spectrum of, of crafts. And so it's an opportunity for craftspeople to be able to connect with one another mm -hmm. and learn from one another. Right. But it's also an opportunity for the public if they're looking for a particular type of, you know, craft or, right. or whatever, have like a one-stop shop. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is, is saying, you know, I have a stained glass window that I need to be restored, you know, they can come to the Preservation Artisans Guild, look through our membership directory and find someone who might be able to help them. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's both, you know, both for the members in terms of, of their ability to network with one another. Yes. And, you know, if there's a project that somebody is working on and, and they need a really skilled mason, right. you know, they can look within the guild and say, oh, you know, I, I have a resource for that. So it's um, something where, where members can resource one another but also the public has a resource. And I did notice looking at the website that it is, it, you have people not just from the Portland area. You have people it's from, it's a, yeah. basically nationwide. Yeah. We have members on the East Coast. We have members, you know, all the way in Astoria. So yeah. it's definitely a national membership. It started out just being something that was local. But what we discovered was that, you know, in order to broaden our spectrum, we needed to, to move beyond the local area. Right. Yeah. We have a silversmith in Rhode Island um, who is just an absolute master, mm -hmm. and but we don't have that here. So right. you know, the one silversmith that was here that was you know really really good mm -hmm. retired. Right. So now we you know we have um, the, uh, the silversmith in Rhode Island, and silver can be shipped. It's right. just, you know yeah. very easy to be shipped. We have a, a lighting specialist in Massachusetts. And she is extraordinary at being able to look at, you know, a space and think about what's in her inventory and make, mm -hmm. you know, suggestions right. accordingly. Yeah. Um, a lot of the light fixtures in here at the firehouse are worth through her. Okay, they're beautiful. And this, now I'm just looking at it. The is was this. This is a was a billiard light. Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah. so so, but this came out of her, you know, her inventory, and then after the firehouse was finished, I re realized that I really needed a light fixture on that side over there, and so I called her, talked talk to her about it. She suggested that light fixture. It was absolutely perfect, and so um, so you know we we try to pull in people that are you know the top of their game. Right. Um, but but. You know, we also look at at how you know how the Preservation Artisan Guild can keep some of these crafts alive, right? Because again, a lot of a lot of these people, you know, they're they're doing crafts that that it's hard to find. Right. It is. It is. And and I hear a lot, and I I know it's not true because you know I I work within the industry, but I hear a lot of times people will say, oh, I didn't know that there was somebody who did that. And so yes. it's great to find people that or have a resource for people to find right. to, and make those connections. Exactly. Yeah. And our, our organization was um, was based on another organization that um, came across that's it's in the you know in the Bay Area okay. um, called Artistic License. And so I saw our you know artistic license and saw what they did, and it's like, oh my gosh, we need that. Right. And so yeah. that, they inspired the, the formation of the Preservation Artisans Guild. That's very, 
I think it's it's very um, it's a very necessary resource, and I think it's great. Yeah, and we you know we do educational activities. You mm -hmm. know, we haven't been able to do that right with you know the virus yeah. and all that. But but you know we will hold um, studio tours. We have lectures. People love field trips. <laughs> exactly, and, and people love to see how things are done. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about is at some point having a studio tour for um, aerial grays okay. so that people can come in and see how a floor right. cloth is made yeah. and you know, talk to us about that process. Yeah, I think that would be, I, I, I think that seeing people make things and, and how, how the process really helps connect people to, you know, maybe why it's expensive or you know because right. they don't understand, they don't understand all the ever all the steps and everything that it need, that needs to go into it right right you know it's it's it's, it's an investment mm -hmm. but it is also an investment that's going to last right it's yeah. not a throwaway product right but you know we are um you know we have historians in our guild who um you know educate about the history of, of things like john goodenberger is a okay. historian in astoria okay. we did um kind of a, a video uh, program because we couldn't have a live program. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we're we're kind of branching out into that as well. So yeah, that that we can reach more people. I've seen a lot of and talking to people in the podcast, I've seen a lot of um, organizations that have really pivoted well onto virtual. Right. Right. I've I've done two virtual presentations and decided I didn't like it because it was like talking to myself for half an hour. Like <laughs> I couldn't see anybody. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll show you one of his fireplaces. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a glass fireplace front, so I'm excited to see yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But. Okay. So, well, um, tell me a little bit about where, from your, your, your uh, point of view, um, preservation challenges and trends. Well, um, it's, it's, when you're looking at architectural preservation, it's, it's very challenging right now because there are a lot of politicians that have kind of taken the, the stance that preservation gets in the way of more units, more, you know, and so they progress. are in the way of progress, <laughs> you know, they, so they, they are basically stripping a lot of the protection for historic you know, buildings and historic neighborhoods, they're stripping that in the name of, you know, more units. Um, you know, there's the residential infill project that, right. is, that is happening here in Portland where every corner lot in the city of Portland is now under development pressure because with that, with that new ordinance, it allows for corner lots to be, you know, the buildings to be torn down and to put like four or five, um, you know, units yeah. in there. Um, it degrades, the, you know, the, the neighborhoods, right. um, you know, it's been shown statistically that that really doesn't make a, a lot of difference in terms of providing more units. Mm -hmm. And then the units that are being um, developed aren't exactly affordable. Right. And yeah. so. And that's, that's a huge, I, that, I think that's a huge so, issue across the country yeah. is the affordable housing. So, you know, I'm, I'm driving down Interstate Avenue and I see um, a 1940s apartment complex. 
yes. that was affordable housing, you know, that people, you know, people, you know, with service industry jobs right. could afford. Yeah. It's all fenced off. It's going to be torn down. Yeah. And then they're going to be building a big apartment complex in there. Right. But, you, you know, those units aren't going to be affordable right. for the people that got kicked out of there. So it, it's very frustrating. Yeah, there's there's huge huge challenges in in affordable housing, and I um I we I, we did a podcast a couple weeks ago uh, with someone from Place Economics, and we talked about affordable housing, and they've done studies that show the older building stock is where the affordable housing is. Exactly. So if you retain that, then you retain affordable housing in the community. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it's it's really hard to get that message to resonate with some of the politicians that right. are currently um, in office. It's just it's it's very difficult. And um, you know, I, I I don't understand why they can't hear the message, but they just can't. Yeah, and I know in um, Pennsylvania there um, there there's some. Um, state programs that actually subsidize then some affordable housing. So if there's a lot of development, then a certain percentage of the apartments are then lot allotted for affordable housing. Right. Um, but without that, and there's there, there's a lot of um, competition for that for that funding. Right. So then you know the developers are trying to get it, but if 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 you don't get it, then do you stop the project or do you go on and just not make it affordable? You know, it's right. all, there's yeah. a whole there's you know, a, whole, a whole, whole overlay. Yeah. But you know, like like. Um, you know, the, the, the Northwest district here, I mean, it's, it's got a historic district. There are lots of historic buildings here and it's one of the densest neighborhoods in Portland. So it's like, excuse you, but, um, you know, you can mix density and historic buildings you can. and, you know, you can allow for sensitively created ADUs. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways to preserve your historic, your historic buildings but also provide affordable housing. Yeah, I agree, and and creative solutions. You know, but it's just you yeah. you just can't do a one size fits all. Did you have any trends? Or I think she said it. Okay, <laughs> very good. Was there anything uh, before we wrap up? Was there anything that you thought of when we were talking that maybe you wanted to share that we that I didn't ask you? Um, no. that I can okay. think of. I think you, you covered kind of a broad spectrum. Yeah. Okay. So, um, did you have anything that you would like to promote to our listeners? Um, so, what I would say there is that we would be happy to offer your listeners 15% um, off anything that's in our inventory. Um, I don't ever offer blanket discounts I, on I, custom I, yeah. work because we just don't know what people are going to, we don't know how much the work is. So. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 when I when I put that question out, I usually say like, you know, even if you're doing a seminar or you have a book, you know, like anything you want is anything you want to promote. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't have to necessarily be a discount, but I appreciate that, and I'm sure that the listeners do too. So, how can our how can our listeners contact you? Um, so our our phone number is 503-206-2631. Um, our website is Ariel Grace design.com uh, and our email is info at arielgracedesign.com okay, very good thank you so much thank you thank you it was a, a pleasure and an honor thank you 
Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.